You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Acts 2. I'm going to read from verse 32 through 40. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. This is God's word. Hey, thank you. <laughs> While I'm, the volume's way up, I'm whispering, you can hear me. Um, good morning, I'm Chad. I am one of the pastors. I'm the other pastor that Aaron stuck with. Uh, here at King's Cross, I never forget. Um, no, uh, we are so thankful for the Davenports and thankful that Tyler was able to join us today and share. It's so exciting to hear all the things. I mean, I haven't been able to keep up, but uh, to see updates from you guys and the way God's working is encouraging. Uh, it's a reminder here in our present day that God still works. He still works. And, and this passage that we're in today uh, if you're with us, we normally go through, if you're visiting with us, we typically go through books of the Bible, and we're currently in a series through Acts. We just started it a few weeks ago, so you're early on. We're only in Acts chapter 2. And last week, Aaron uh, preached from the early parts of chapter 2 through verse 14, uh, or verse 13, in which uh, the Pente it's Pentecost occurred, where the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, the apostles, filled them, and they began to speak as what's said here in various tongues so that people from all tribes understood them in a miraculous way, a way that, um, that God was making a statement in what he was doing. And we're continuing in that on to, if you're new to, new to Christianity, we're going into what is actually the first recorded sermon of the church by Peter. Uh, he is preaching to a crowd that has come together because of this chaos that's going on. And they're wanting to figure out what's happening. So he said, hey, like any good preacher, I've got a crowd, so I'm going to go ahead and give a sermon. But we're going to be in this passage um, here looking at what it is that Peter wants to communicate. What is the first thing that the Spirit-filled apostle wants to get across to his crowd? Really, first things. Because you may or may not have heard sermons on a lot of different topics, but Peter has the opportunity and has the power of God in him, and he wants to proclaim something, and I think we should listen. So would you pray with me this morning? I want to pray that the Spirit would fill us and be with us as he promises to be, that it would be evident that he would teach us this morning. So would pray with me. 
Father, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that we do get to open up your word. I'm thankful for, for stories, for teams like the Browns um, who are, are out there faithfully proclaiming the gospel that we see the fruit of even today, that, that the story of Acts, the story of the church is not ended, uh, but is continuing at places around the world. God, I'm grateful this morning that you give us the chance to open up your word and hear from you, and I pray that in no uncertain terms, your spirit would be in this room. And we know you promise your spirit to your people. And God, when your word is read, there is power in the text. There is power in your word. And Father, I pray that it would move in such a way to change me, to change people here today, that someone might hear even one small message that could change the trajectory of the trajectory of their life forever. God grant us that grace today. And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Could you look at the world we live in and say it's just the way it should be? Could you look at your own life or the life of your friends and family and say that, hey, that's exactly I would love, I love the way it's going for everybody. If you're like me, there's likely many things in this world that you'd like to change if you had the power. There's lots of things in this world that we'd want to see changed too, but we often don't feel the power too, and sometimes we don't feel we have the ability to change those things. Way back in 2008, then Senator Barack Obama was running his first campaign for president, and he had several catchphrases that popularized during his campaign. Maybe you've heard of Yes, We Can. I don't know. Maybe you're not familiar with that. That was one of the popular catchphrases. And there was one phrase in particular that was not original to him. He never claimed it was. But it did hold on and it did grab hold when he was uh, in a speech. He used it in a speech mentioning the many changes that he and his supporters wanted to see if they were to take the office. And that, that phrase was, we are the ones we have been waiting for. We are the ones that we have been waiting for. It's a powerful call. Don't wait around for others to do what we can work for today. Change the world. And I'm not belittling that call. In fact, I'm highlighting the fact that it was inspirational. And in this story in Acts, the Jewish people at the time of this passage were looking for a change too. They were looking for something not much different than many of us today. But they were looking for someone specific to bring the change. Changes that only he could bring. And that was perfect peace. Perfect peace. In this passage, as we look today, Peter is bringing them that answer. They are pointing, he is pointing to the one that they're waiting for. Jesus is the one we have been waiting for. The Jewish people are looking for the restoration of their kingdom, and he is telling them that their king has come. So in his text, in this chapter, it's actually beginning in chapter four, uh, 2, verse 14. Let's look together and see what is it that Jesus lay, that Peter lays out. What is he trying to communicate? And ultimately, overall, he's trying to demonstrate for us that God is building his kingdom on earth, through the rule of Jesus, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. 
He lays out his case in three parts that we're going to look at. And the first one is in verses 14 through 21. So I'm going to read in verse 14 if you want to follow along with you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you can follow on the screen, but we also have some at the table. We'd love to put one in your hand. But let's read together in verse 14. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all the residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. Now, that's an interesting way to start a sermon. I'm not stepping up here saying, hey, guys, we're not drunk. But he's actually responding to something that happened in the previous because it was so crazy uh, that they were starting to speak in tongues. They were talking to people. People were understanding them. And there was some dismissal in the crowd. And they're like, guys, they're just, they're, they're drunk on new wine. Just ignore those people over there, those apostles. Some hundred people just preaching and teaching what is said to be the magnificent works of God. And what Peter gets up with, and I appreciate, is he actually addresses the crowd with a little bit of a lighthearted response. A lot of commentators look at this and say he's kind of being lighthearted in this, and he's saying, listen, guys, there's no way we're drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Like, like, Jews aren't even eating most of the time by this point. We're definitely not drinking, okay? And so he's, he's responding to them in a way that is a little disarming, and it's his intro to his first spirit-filled sermon. Now, this is only implied, and I just want to uh, set it as a tiny aside, not to go too deep. But they're accusing and being critical of him and their group in a very powerful and important time, right? The Spirit's just come. They've been filled with the Spirit. They're ready to go preach the gospel, and people are, like, dismissing them, saying, y'all, you're just drunk. Yet he doesn't respond in anger. He just says, no, nah, man. Wait, it's too early for that. And he goes on to what the really important message is. And my only encouragement for that is what I pull back and say, there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with you in your life. And, and we seem to live in this kind of tribal warfare kind of environment. I don't know if it's, I'm not going to get into psychology of social media and people battling out online, but people tend to be on edge. Like I've made comments and it's like I attacked their children. Okay. Christians should be the most gracious in disagreements. We should be able, you might not be preaching a sermon, but be able to just simply take what is said and move along humbly and graciously to the most important matters. And so Peter demonstrates that here. And he moves on to verse 16. He says this, On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. He wants to get them right into what's happening, so he says, look at the prophet Joel. In verse 17, it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. When your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter turns them right to Joel. It's one of their prophets. Now you have to remember, this is during Pentecost. It's a festival that's occurring. It's people traveling very far distances. So the likelihood of this crowd being very devout and very familiar with Scripture is very high. And so they're aware of Joel. They're aware of prophecy. As I mentioned before, they're looking forward to someone who's going to bring everlasting change. And Peter says, we're not drunk. Look at Joel. And what does Joel say? Joel says that this is the beginning of the last days. 
He said, look what's happening around us. This is what Joel said when he said, the spirit will be poured out. And it says, in the last days, this will occur. So when you shouldn't be surprised by what you see, you should rather say, hey, what message are they bringing? Because this must be a really important time. The last days are those days which are leading up to, as he refers to, the day of the Lord. That's that final judgment day in which God comes and sees all and he makes it all right and just. What they're looking for in the restoration of the kingdom is something called shalom. It's a very familiar word in, in, in Hebrew language, and it's a greeting, it's a farewell address. You would hear it often, people would, would wish you shalom. And it's often uh, in translated simply as peace, okay? So it's like saying peace, peace be with you is, is the, the tone, but really the depth of shalom goes far beyond an absence of conflict and war. It's far richer than that. Shalom is the peace of the Lord. It's completeness, it's wholeness, it's soundness, it's well-being, it's complete reconciliation. To greet someone shalom is to wish them wholeness in all of their life. Wholeness. Now, we sense the lack of wholeness and incompletement and brokenness in our, in our world, don't we? Do we sense the lack of wholeness and really brokenness that we see? Violence and crime and hate? Someone who would kidnap and kill a jogger, most, most recently in the news, shooting at people indiscriminately, chasing down, assaulting, and killing a man because you think he looks like he doesn't belong in your neighborhood. We see brokenness in our relationships, in our own circles. If, ever, if you've got a perfect relationship here, I'd love to hear the hot tips you got for us. There's brokenness in the way we see others who harm one another in relationships. There's brokenness in our health. And the bodies that break down. I can guarantee you this, that my body, according to science, the cells are dying faster than they're replacing at this point in my life. Um, very depressing to say out loud, but that means I am on a trajectory of death. Wow, I'm going to cry. No. But it, it's just a fact of our lives that we see the effects of brokenness and, and the lack of wholeness in this world. But how often do we look around and almost think something like this? Why does everybody else keep messing up this world? Why does everybody else keep messing up this world? Maybe you're familiar with this, maybe you're not. I did a search on that, like, like the idea of other people messing up the world, and I came across this quote from a guy named Scott Disick. I, I didn't know who he was. The, uh, keeping up with the Kardashians. I only quote scholars in here. No. Um, <laughs> he's got a meme. I'm quoting memes. What am I doing? We're falling apart, Aaron. No wonder you don't, you're stuck with me. He says this in this little like camera interaction. He says, you know, I've realized that I'm probably just perfect and it's everybody else around me that's got issues. Now we might not vocalize that, but how often do we actually feel that way? How often do we act that way? If they could just get it together but we're not innocent, right? This brokenness we see in this world, as a Christian, we know that the Bible refers to our contribution to evil and brokenness in the world as sin. That's what it calls it. And really, sin is our rebellion against how God created us. We're, we're living differently. Theologian N.T. Wright, he talks about the word sin, and he says this, the normal Greek word for sin, namely hamartia, means 
missing the mark, shooting at a target and failing to hit it. This is subtly, uh, subtly, but importantly, different from being given a long and fussy list of things you must and mustn't do and failing to observe them all. Humans were created for a purpose, and Israel was called for a purpose, and the purpose was not simply to keep rules, to be with God, or to go to heaven. Humans were made to be image bearers. And we fall short of being the human God designed us to be. We fall short of bearing the image to the glory of God. And by failing to live as God's image bearer, we harm others, ourselves, we commit violence against his created order, and the Jewish people are looking for someone, for God, to make all of this right. Peter says that this is occurring in the last days, and we know it's the last days because his Holy Spirit is poured out. What is the answer for changing us? What is the answer for our sin? What is the way in which God is going to change people that are in his kingdom? In the Old Testament, God places spirits on certain people, prophets, priests. In fact, Moses was one of those guys, and Moses even said, I just wish everybody else had the spirit, and I didn't have to have the burden. He saw it that way because everyone came to him for the oracles of God, for hear what God had to say. And he wished that they would, and God said, don't worry, it's going to happen. And Joel said, it's going to happen in the last days, and now here it is. Here it is, the, the spirit's out on all of God's people. And God starts and he continues to build his kingdom by putting his spirit in people, by placing his spirit in people. Believers, we, uh, we are in the last days and God's at work. We're in the last days and God's at work. There is no greater miracle than the life change that he brings in the heart and mind of a new believer. And that he continues to change believers day by day to be something that they were not. See, what I don't want us to do is, this is often the case, when we look at things like last days and the day of the Lord, is that there's a tendency to, to be consumed with these signs and wonders as some future thing that's going to happen. At the neglect and forgetting that God wants to change us today. This is the way God works in his kingdom. He changes his people from the inside. And the result is a life more and more full of what the Bible refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. That as we walk in this world, the book of Galatians tells us the fruit starts to show from our life. As the Spirit's in us, we see more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more kindness, more goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is how he builds the kingdom now. It's not social programs, it's not political movements, it's not civil laws, it's not our own strength to do better. Can God work through those means? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he does. But if you're working hard at any of those efforts, those man-made efforts to fix this broken world and your life displays no fruit of the Spirit, then there's no evidence of life of the Spirit in you because he changes you from the inside. God is changing his people in these last days, but they are leading up to what is called the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, that day in which God ultimately finally makes all things right and good. And when we talk about the kingdom, we talk about a period of already, this part of last days, and the not yet, the point in which God will bring judgment. And that's what Joel ultimately says is coming in the future, is that day of judgment when perfect peace comes. 
Evil is punished, death is defeated, and sin is no more. If God is making everything right, and like we already talked about before, we're part of the problem, where does that leave us? Joel says there's only one hope. It's in verse 20, 21. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. That day of judgment comes. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on his name. And he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the one that these Jewish devout Jews are looking for. The king of the kingdom. In Psalm 2, God says he would install his king. And the prophet Isaiah refers to this king and this Messiah as the prince of peace or the prince of shalom. The one that would make all things right. And Peter says, Jesus is that king. Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. And he points to evidence in this way. Look at verse 22. This is his evidence. This is what evidence Peter gives for this. He says, fellow Israelites, you heard that this is the last days, right? Now he goes and turns this way very quickly, very abruptly. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. See, what Peter starts with is he assumes the miracles. Now, it might seem a little strange to us today, right? We're not expecting miracles to happen. Peter assumed it when he's talking. He's not a dumb guy. He's not ignorant. He knows for a fact that God didn't hide the work he did in Christ. He knows, as he says this, with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. He says, you all saw this. You saw it. You heard about it, or you saw it. In fact, the only opposition he really received at that time was that he was doing it through the work of Satan. And so, Peter points directly at first. He says, listen, God has attested to this guy by giving him power to do work miracles first. The second thing he points to as evidence is that death could not hold Jesus. Verse 23, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. What that means is that God determined the right time and he sent him to die. But... We're all guilty. God determined the time, but it's for our sins, so we're all guilty. He tells them, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross. Now, it could be a couple of reasons for lawless people. People who are obviously against Jesus, we're going to say maybe they're lawless. But in fact, often this is also referenced to the Romans. The Romans were pivotal in actual execution of Christ. Either way, it's people who are living and working outside of God's law to put to death an innocent man. But despite killing him, look at verse 24, God raised him up. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Death couldn't hold him. Because he had power over it. Peter says, you saw the miracles that God did through him. And he said that he was the Messiah. He said that he was God. He said that he was divine. And then when you tried to kill him, he overcame death. And he points to 
David as the example, giving the prophecy in verse 25, because David says this of, of the Messiah. I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or to death, to afterlife is what they refer to as Hades, or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the path of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Now, some people might read that psalm and think David's talking about himself. You won't abandon me in Hades. But Peter very quickly in verse 29 says, hey, brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us today. We could just walk over there and look at it. But since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his own descendants. He promised a descendant of David to sit on the throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. So first he says, Jesus did miracles in front of many people, and you heard about it. God affirmed him. And then he says, he conquered death and he's confident that they know about it because he relies on eyewitness testimony. He assumes that Christ rose. He assumes that Christ rose because, you know, the arguments in the opposition of the day said you just stole his body. But Paul says in his letter that over 500 people saw Christ after he rose. At that time, we didn't have cameras, but if 500 people see the same thing, you think Peter's like, you guys know her, you heard about this, right? You heard about this. He, he rose. He says that David called it ahead of time in, in verses 25 through 31. Based on our own eyewitness, on their own eyewitness account of Peter and all of his men, a hundred Jewish men and women, they actually rose against the synagogue. They, they were Jewish people. They rose against the synagogue. Do you know the synagogue at that time was their social standing? It was their income. It was their safety. And they did that all to testify about Jesus. They gained nothing financially, and they suffered substantially. You might deceive others to die for your cause, but very few people would die for something they know is a lie. Yet, many of the apostles who claimed to see the risen Christ were tortured and murdered for their testimony, and they never denounced it. There's a generational test that we could do here today by mentioning Waco, Texas. Now, for many of you in here, you probably thought of Chip and Joanna. For me and some others, you might think of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. It's telling that a lot of you might not know who that is. He claimed to be a prophet and he took leadership of a cult group that really that developed during my early childhood. Early, early childhood. Culminating in a standoff with federal authorities and ultimately his death. It was all over the news, plastered on the newspapers out there, you know, where the newsies were running around handing them out because it was old. Like, but here's the deal. Like so many other in his, others in history that made claims like that, he said he was a prophet and he had a following who made such radical claims, very few remember them. And there is no lasting movement. But Jesus Christ came preaching the kingdom, performing miracles, claiming his own divinity, and he was killed for it. But death couldn't hold him. 
death couldn't keep him, and his followers laid down their life to witness to all that they had seen. God is not absent or hidden. The fullness of God came in Christ, the most famous and influential man in history. God kind of made a big deal about coming to earth. He made a splash. How did Christ make such an impact? Why does Peter say that he's the king? Because the evidence God displayed through him in his miracles and in his resurrection, and then finally because he gives us the Holy Spirit as Lord and Messiah. Look at verse 32. God has made Jesus Lord and Messiah. God has raised this Jesus. He has raised them. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says this. And he's going to quote from a psalm, again from David, that says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, David talking about what happens with Christ. Therefore, let all the house of Israel, and this is what Peter really wants them to know, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is the conquering king. He's the one that they've been waiting for. He's the one who has come to set all things right. He's exalted by God to rule over the kingdom. And that king, in tradition, as conquering kings come, they take prizes from their conquest. They come, a king who goes forward in the war, and he takes forward a prize, and he brings it back to his people. And that's exactly the image that, Paul, that Peter gives here because he says Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit in his conquest over death, sin, and evil. And now what does he do in turn? He pours it out on his people. He pours it out on them. And he says, no with certainty, Jesus is Lord. He has power and authority and all power and authority is his. Jesus is Messiah. He is good and righteous ruler who saves. He conquered death, and now he offers life to his people. And then what's the end? What's the end game? What's the final, the final portion of his sermon? What is now happens as a result of hearing this news? These devout Jews hear this. They hear the fact that their Messiah has come. At least that's what Peter's saying. They've heard the evidence. How do they respond? Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? What should we do? They were convinced. If you're a believer in here today, at some point you may have experienced that piercing to the heart that they're describing, that reality of what is true in front of you by no other description by the fact that you understand and see that it is true. And that's what, these, that's what these, this crowd is doing. They're, it pierced to the heart. And their only response is to say to Peter, what's next? What do I do about this? You say the judgment day's coming. You say that he's the Messiah. What's, what do I do? Peter replies, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. Repent and be baptized. Repent to renounce all other allegiances. Essentially, he's telling them, listen, you have been in this world and there's a king with a kingdom that needs and desires and is owed your allegiance. Renounce all other things. Repent. 
Turn away from those things and turn to him. Turn to him for his salvation and then be baptized. That's an outward commitment, an outward visual demonstration of what is happening on the inside. The change that God's doing in them. Really an outward visual cleansing of the body where the Holy Spirit is cleansing you from the inside. And he says in the name of Jesus Christ, because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And he says it for what? The forgiveness of your sins. Remember this. Jesus is Lord and Messiah, but he did not come to condemn the world, but to save. That's important to remember because when we talk about God, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about judgment, it's often seen in a way of, well, why is he punishing me for all these things I didn't know? And what Peter is saying, he's not coming to say, to, to, to punish, to condemn. He is coming to offer you a way out. He is a king that's rescuing a people. He's rescuing those who are already trapped in another kingdom, really. What is it for? God says it's for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who is it for? All who are far off. Read that passage again. All who are fall off, far off. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. What happens? How do they respond? Verse 40. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So, those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. When they look at that estimate, you might say, that's a crazy number. That's like, hey, we got a big conquest going. Well, truth is, given that it was a festival, people who are historians and look at this and say, the, the population of Jerusalem, the likely influx of people, the commotion that they were making, he probably had a crowd enough for that. We already have evidence in modern day of people who are preaching to crowds that, loud, that size and louder. I mean, larger. I'm not projecting well enough for that. But in the right circumstances, it was a normal thing. And in this case, not only did they hear the words of life, but they received the message, and that day about 3,000 people were added to the kingdom. God is building his kingdom on earth. He's continuing to build his kingdom on earth through the rule of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Believers, we have that gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in here today, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. God is working in you. Do you hear that? That is powerful. Do you feel that? Do you trust that? If you've put your faith in Christ, he has promised your, his spirit to be in you, to help guide you into truth, to help lead you and speak. Don't quench that. Don't press that back. Hear from him. Live as citizens of God's kingdom. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. We don't just simply repent and be baptized and we're good to go. I got my ticket to heaven now let's go enjoy the world as it is that's not what Paul and Peter no, Peter's encouraging in fact Luke tells us elsewhere in his gospel that every day we pick up our cross to follow the king king's cross that's kind of where we got our name I didn't plan that I was like oh king's cross how do we live under God's rule? 
Think about this. How do we live under God's rule? Well, as we repent daily, we are living in willing obedience to the king. In willing obedience to the king. That every day we pick up our cross and we say, God, how would you guide me in this? How is this spirit filling me? What direction would you have me take? Secondly, we live in outward display of the kingdom. Our life should show the fruit of the spirit within us. And finally, we live in an ever-growing enjoyment of the king. When you are in a kingdom of peace, you enjoy it. That's actually what the Westminster Confession, it's a collection of of truths from Scripture collected together and tried to put in very easy-to-understand statements. And the statement summarizing this is that the chief end, the ultimate goal of man, is to glorify God, to obey Him, to display Him, and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Psalm 1611, the psalmist sings this song. He says, you reveal the paths of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy and at your right hand are eternal pleasures. For those who are far off, if God is foreign to you, can I say for a moment that God has brought you here to this call? His call of mercy and grace is for you. It says, for all those the Lord would call, this promise is for you. Join the kingdom of God. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For life everlasting and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are kingdom citizens and we're not of this world, but God wants to change us while we live in this world and glorify his name through us. There's no greater king to follow. Let's follow King Jesus. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the truth of this sermon that Peter preached. God, that he would share with his, the crowd there and that we would continue to glean from the wisdom that he proclaimed. God, I pray, Lord, that what would be true for that crowd at that time of 3,000, that we would see you work and move in such a way today. I'm so grateful to hear of the way that you're working in, in similar ways in Utah, even through our brother Tyler. And Lord, I'm encouraged by that to continue to pray in ways that are far above and beyond I could ever ask or imagine, but that God, you would add to your kingdom even today. We're thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for your love. And we ask all this in Christ's name.